To automatically get new episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. So it was less than a month after my father had passed away, which was um, sudden, but uh, I would say unexpected and expected at the same time. Um, my mother had seen a doctor. I had taken her to her family doctor afterwards. Um, there were some symptoms that she had been having for a while, but um, I would say that they seemed, in comparison to my father's symptoms, uh, they, they weren't as severe. Um, she was more tired. Um, she had some memory issues, but she was in her 80s. Um, it didn't seem at the time that it was something that uh, was a big problem. Um, we saw, we went to see her family doctor, and I had already had the results of her echocardiogram because uh, I'm a physician as well. And we had seen the family physician prior just for a checkup. Uh, and had the test uh, ordered and done, and I had seen the results, and knew that she had some valvular heart disease, and knew that the results, uh, we were gonna be having a discussion about surgery. Um, but it was in together sitting and talking to the physician and, and knowing that that was likely going to be what she needed. Um, at an advanced age with a lot of medical problems, that was something that, um, was obviously pretty serious. Um, and so we had to figure that out uh, together. Um, at the time, uh, my mother had already started to um, ask my opinion about a lot of her medical issues and almost leave it up to me, I would say. Uh, when she had different questions, uh, she would ask my opinion and almost invariably do whatever it was my opinion was. Part of that, I think, was because uh, I'm, a, I'm a family doc, but um, also I think part of it was the fact that she had difficulty in really understanding at that point what the, the complexity of different options were. And I think the other part of it was that she was, at this point in her life, um, after the loss of, um, of her siblings and her husband, my dad, uh, you know, she, in a way, um, was looking for someone else to make those difficult decisions and really wasn't able to continue or wasn't able, felt like she wasn't able to make those decisions on her own. Welcome to Health Stories. These are real stories inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the real life stories of clinicians and patients and those who have navigated the U.S. healthcare system We invite you to listen to their stories, their insights, and their tips in the hopes that might help you navigate the system as well. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kevin McNeil, a family medicine physician who is sharing with us a story about caring for his aging parents and addressing undiagnosed dementia. So welcome, Dr. McNeil. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So you're telling the story about um, how your father had passed and now you're caring for your mom and she has some uh, undiagnosed conditions that are going on. 
So she went to the, you went with her to the physician's office? Yes. And um, so what, what did you end up finding out at, at that appointment? So we found out that she had um, aortic valve disease. Uh, she had a problem with her, one of her heart valves that was severe enough to be causing shortness of breath and severe enough that if it continued untreating or, or if it continued to be untreated, then she'd be at risk of further sickness and death. Mm. So I'm thinking about um, all of us who potentially have aging parents, you get to that point in your life, mm. um, that if you do have both of your parents around, um, that things start to come up, right? So what was going on that um, you knew you knew some things were happening, but you, you didn't, so tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, the, um, I guess what I'd like to say is to take a few steps back. Uh, what had happened is that as my folks got a little bit older, they were started to have health problems. Um, they were living about three and a half hours away from me. And I would uh, frequently go down drive from Pennsylvania to Maryland. Before that, it was New Jersey to Maryland before I moved out here. There were different health issues that my father especially had. Um, he had a number of TIAs or mini strokes. Um, he had other health problems as well. Um, for those of you listening, um, there are some workers outside the building, so you might be picking up their, their yard work. So I'm sorry, Dr. McNeil, go ahead. So my father was having a number of different health conditions, different symptoms. And of course, uh, we were all focused on that, my, my mother and uh, my siblings who live in different states. Um, and together with my folks, we decided that it would be helpful if they moved up here to be close to me and my family, my wife, my kids. And so they did. Um, and then, of course, my, as my father's condition continued to, to worsen, um, uh, it required sort of more attention, more frequent doctor's visits, um, figuring out the, whether or not he should have a, a surgery for a hernia that he had. After we together decided about having the surgery, you know, my father's Conditioned, got uh, got continued to get worse and required oxygen and um, and um, I would say though in retrospect that um, since we were focused on my dad's condition we were so focused on my mom's mm -hmm. and so you know as often happens even though my dad's condition was worsening over time um, and uh, he kept on having uh, other symptoms that. Uh, that needed to be addressed and seeing many different uh, physicians and uh, you know, starting to wear continuous or use oxygen continuously. Um, when he did die, it was still a shock. Um, so it was, it was a situation where it was expected and unexpected at the same time. And so after he passed away though, um, in, 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 uh, talking with mom, caring for mom, getting mom medical care that she needed, or just, you know, uh, coming with her to, to different doctor's visits. Um, it became clear that she was having some symptoms at the same time, over time, um, that we just weren't uh, focused on because we were more focused on my father's situation. And so in retrospect, looking back in time, seeing that a number of things. One is that, you know, yeah, my father needed to sit down frequently my mom always joined him 
she was getting easily fatigued and easily short of breath. It just mm -hmm. wasn't to the extent of his symptoms. Uh, in addition, uh, we had she had some signs of uh, problems with memory, but they were signs that I think were maybe more subtle. Um, and again, they were we weren't um, that focused on them. And my dad, especially, I think in retrospect started to take over for some of the things that my mom had previously done. So my mom was an accountant and handled their finances for years. Um, my dad had sort of asked uh, if I would um, start helping out and I remember asking them about you know, preparing their taxes and my mom, again, an accountant and an exceptionally bright person, uh, had had told had said that you know what she really didn't they really didn't need to do that at that age um, it was something that i uh, really didn't uh, question and my father had taken over some of the finances that he he wasn't really hadn't been involved in for years and then i think the key point was the medications he sort of took over um, medications and, and actually he took them over a couple of years ago so he would manage both of their medications oh, and her, her uh, yeah her regimen well both of their regimens were pretty complicated they had they had a lot of medical problems uh, my mom has a lot of medical problems and my dad he would sit there he would be very he was very exact very organized very precise and he would take the time on a weekly basis to lay out the medications in a pillbox for both of them uh, and my mother would frequently say, well, you know, your father manages that, or the medications aren't important uh, to me. Uh, I rely on Bill for that, and on my dad for that. And then it continued when, after my dad passed away, that she would say, well, I don't really know my medications. Uh, um, my son manages my medications, you know. So I would take her to the doctor's visits, and she would rely on, on, uh, on me, um, and whenever... Um, the, finish, the, uh, the nurses or the physicians or clinicians would ask her questions, she would always defer to me. But it was interesting in that it was not her memory loss, um, actually even to this day, is not readily observable. I mean, she is someone who um, has a great vocabulary and um, she has a memory for certain things. She also has a particular sense of humor that, uh, and she can respond quickly. Anyway, the point of all that is that it's not something that is immediately obvious and uh, to this day is actually a surprise to a lot of people um, when they look at uh, her diagnosis or um, how far, how, how significant her memory loss is um, when you look at specific cognitive testing. Mm -hmm. There's so, this is such a fascinating story um, because what I'm hearing you say is that with your father, his um, conditions were more obvious or more apparent. Uh, I'm assuming he had a number of physical um, comorbidities or... That's or, right, yeah. And so you, everybody was taking care of what they could see and what was obvious. And the cognitive impairment sometimes happens over years and it's real subtle. My first question though is, I was going to ask, was your mom the caregiver for your dad for years before that? Um, I would say to an extent. Okay. Um, my dad was uh, very independent and really managed his own conditions. He was, he, he got that way because um, he was that way his whole life. I mean, he, he was actually had health problems uh, since infancy. And, 
um, uh, even at the age of three, he had fallen into the ice and developed a pneumonia, and antibiotics at that time weren't widely available. They were available in the military, but they weren't available um, at that time, at, at, uh, you know, uh, widely available. And so this, the, the, he did not clear that pneumonia, and he um, required surgery. So he had uh, one lung <laughs> that no. he, you know, which was surprising because he smoked till like in his 40s. So he smoked till his 40s, had one, one lung, and, um, uh, and lived uh, remarkably to the age of 80, but required uh, oxygen. So he also had developed uh, colon cancer at a young age um, and required an ostomy just in his 40s. Uh, and so uh, he managed all of that um, on his own, um, the care for his ostomy. Um, and his other medical problems as he as he uh, developed them. You know, he had a heart condition. He had um, strokes that fortunately were sm small strokes, uh, and then ultimately the um, one lung and um, the history of smoking did catch up to him, and he required uh, oxygen chronically. So that was um, immediately evident, and it was also part of the the narrative of our family. You know, the uh, the, the you know, my mother would call him the Energizer Bunny, you know, I mean, he just, you know, he had one thing after the other, and, and he, uh, and, and uh, he just kept on going. And so my mother had other things as well, but it was more, it uh, wasn't as noticeable, it was more in the background. Um, and that continued uh, until um, the point where, again, that he got more sick, and then she started to have the symptoms that we've been talking about. Um, I would say that my mother was the person who, who uh, managed a lot of things in the household. And she was, again, going back to the stories that we tell ourselves in the families and the roles we, different, we, we play, uh, you know, she um, was someone who was obviously very intelligent, had this amazing memory, uh, and she managed um, the finances and sort of handled the household as well, you know. Um, raising five kids and then going back to work um, pretty much because she needed to uh, in her early 40s and then sort of making a, a career uh, um, starting at the age of 40 um, and then you know working until retirement so that that was sort of the roles that she played and the roles that my father played uh, and it wasn't I guess it was more subtle the the shift that became more evident to me um, looking back. Yeah, the reason I ask if she was a caregiver because when I hear the story of undiagnosed dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, it often is, or, or any, any illness I should say, it's often the caregiver who is living with something that's undiagnosed mm -hmm. because no one's paying attention to the caregiver, they're paying attention to the person that that individual is caring for. Right. And so I wondered how much of this was, um, you know, didn't get noticed because everyone was focusing on dad and his conditions and so whatever was happening to her. What, what's interesting though is it sounds like your dad was covering for her, like over time, be, taking over some of the things that she couldn't do and they were sort of tag teaming but it sounds like not everybody knew that they were doing that. My father was absolutely covering for Yeah, him. that's interesting. And taking on yeah. different roles that he wasn't maybe naturally suited for or that he wasn't particularly strong in and, and just doing it. But he also would uh, minimize her symptoms because yeah. it, was, it wasn't that it, it, these diagnoses or these concerns completely came out of the blue. Um, it was the severity of them 
wasn't obvious to me and to others. And I'd say that, you know, in our family, being um, the only person uh, who has, um, who works in healthcare, um, then sort of that, that sort of um, assessment and evaluations and questions kind of came to me. Um, and again, looking back at it became clear, but um, what her symptoms were, but they were more subtle. And as you had just mentioned, he had really sort of taken over and covered for those symptoms that she had and would minimize it. He would definitely minimize it. They both minimized it. So I, I, I want to ask the question, both as a son of parents who had um, this happen, but also as a physician, is why? So why did your parents go to such great lengths to cover this up, to accommodate for each other, and not come out and say it? So I'm going to answer that question by telling a story. Okay, good. The uh, I um, at, you know, again as as my parents' conditions um, began to get worse, they moved up here to an area, uh, an apartment, really a senior housing area. Um, but I thought it would be a good idea if they had uh, moved into an assisted living, just so that they would have extra backup, so that they would have um, medical staff should they need it, and they would have meals prepared for them, so they wouldn't have to worry about preparing meals, etc., etc. And they kind of humored me in my desire to, <laughs> you know, to at least look at these places. And, um, but they did not want to be in an assisted living. Um, um, they, my father especially, um, you know, wanted to do things on his own. So that's the answer to your question. It's that loss of independence, that loss of autonomy, it's that loss of definition of, of who you are and who you, how you see yourself and, um, and the kind of person that you are, mm -hmm. uh, kind of loss of, uh, of definition of the things that define you. Yeah, I, I just to share my own brief story because you, you inspired me <laughs> to share. My, my grandmother who lived to be 98 when she was in her early 90s, I remember there was a conversation about let's put her into assisted living and she fought it and I remember she said to me, please, please, I really want to stay in my home. And my parents were trying to understand it was in her best interest because she had actually um, had some minor accident and it was clear that she was having some, some more challenges. Uh, but her response was something to the effect of, I would rather you know live in this house until I die than have to be put into an assisted living. And I think it's hard for those of us with aging parents to understand because we're trying to do what's in their best interests and then also having to face that they don't want to lose their independence. So how, I, I want to transition now into, so how do you do that? How did you have these conversations um, with your parents to, to get the help they need and the diagnoses, but also respect um, their wishes and their choices? Well, I've learned a lot over the past um, few years, um, really through my parents, through, through um, how they dealt with the situations that they were felt, uh, faced with and the decisions that they made. Um, and so my opinion has changed uh, about that. Um, uh, and I, if I were, it were in my dad's shoes, and maybe someday I will be, um, I think I'd make the same exact decision that he made. Um, and so he, I was able to um, support that decision. They were able to live independently for a while, really until my father's death. And I think that that was uh, the best decision. So there were certain things that 
I had wanted as a concerned uh, um, son, um, but also, just to be blunt, also someone who um, still has kids who are teenage years and, you know, uh, work responsibilities, etc. I mean, you know, we're, we're all pulled in a few different ways and it becomes a real challenge. And boy, it would have been nice from my perspective and my perspective alone to have them live in a place where their medications would be taken care of, their food would be taken care of. They wouldn't have to drive to different places. They would have the medical care um, when and if they needed it. Um, and so it was. It was. Uh, it would have been nice for me, but it wasn't the right decision for them. Mm, that's great advice. I, I was having this image of asking you. So your children listen to this podcast, and you're giving advice to your children for what you would like for yourself 20 years from now. What well, did your children dot dot dot? Okay. So. Um, I think that uh, even though I'm a physician, uh, um, or maybe especially because I'm a physician, um, it would be really helpful for them to be um, involved, uh, you know, as I age, and um, maybe as I develop um, certain, maybe some memory problems or some other uh, health-related problems, to ha to be able to go with me to the different appointments uh, would be helpful. To have that's actually good advice for anyone actually so just to have someone else with you uh, making sure that you um, that you understand what's being said or you have a different point of view about what is being said um, and that you can discuss together um, what the findings are uh, what the options are uh, for treatment I would also say um, that it's I'm going to ask, answer this question specifically about uh, memory-related issues, um, just because that's on the foremost. Uh, that's um, what I'm thinking about now uh, with the problems that my mother is is facing. It's easy uh, for those um, problems to go uh, undiagnosed. It's easy uh, for, especially when you're seeing a doctor's, uh, going for a doctor's visit. A um, lot goes on in a small period of time. Some questions are asked, um, and it's easy, I think, to answer those questions in a way where um, memory problems aren't immediately evident. So I would say that if there are concerns, family concerns, about memory, it would be a good idea for, to answer your question, for my children to bring it up to uh, the doctors or, or the healthcare providers that I would see at that time. And it's just a good idea for family in general, if they are concerned, to don't hesitate to, yes, of course, bring that up to your loved one. Um, and with your loved one's permission, bring that up to their clinician as well. Um, because then it, it focuses more time on the issue. And rather than a couple of questions about how you're doing and, and um, a couple of questions about uh, if there are any many memory concerns or just seeing how a person responds to the questions that you ask, you could actually, the clinician could focus uh, the visit uh, on memory and cognitive issues specifically. Um, thinking about my mother, um, she always did well on those tests. She always did well on tests in general. 
Yeah, I'm curious about that. When you have people who actually pass the test, but the children are saying, wait a minute, there, there's something not right. Right, yeah. And so there are some tests that you can use that uh, are, are decent screening tests, but for some individuals can miss uh, certain cognitive problems. Um, like for example, in my mother's case, it was she really had a deficit in, in executive functioning or problems of figuring out um, how to do things, going back to the medications and figuring out the medications and laying them out. Certainly if you were at that time to have a conversation with her, she would be able to give you a political opinion and she'd be able to um, to respond uh, to uh, a joke that's being said, for example, and she just would not have the it wouldn't be obvious, as I said before, but if you really drill down and, and ask questions or even performed a, or asked her to perform a cognitive screening, a test in the office, uh, then those things would come to light. So did she, well, I was going to say, so when, did they do a test and it showed that she had dementia? Did that come up the first time? So that was, she did have um, uh, memory problems. Um, she did pretty well, I would say, on the screening test, or very well on the screening test. Uh, and then, but what came, what really took precedence was her surgery that she had to have. Um, and, it, and that was quickly after my father had passed away. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, and after she recovered for that, um, so a few months later, um, then it was time to do more of an evaluation. Now, of course, the anesthesia may have had an impact on, on her cognitive abilities and her memory as well. But she, yes, she did have more of an evaluation and that was with a geriatrician actually and, okay. uh, and spending a, um, a pretty significant chunk of time from that initial visit was like three hours. It was, it was long um, and a number of different tests and, um, and, and interviews as well. And so with all that information, um, then you know she was diagnosed with cognitive impairment and then over time diagnosed with with uh, dementia, early dementia, and you know, treated for that with medications and trying to uh, address it. Uh, at that time, she did, was living in an assisted living or had moved to an assisted living. Um, this was, um, you know, a while after my father's death, um, and it was time for her to live in assisted living. And so, then, not only with addressing it in terms of medications, but also with um, some speech therapy and uh, interaction with the staff and activities and the like. Yeah, I want to get into to that because that's a really good topic too. Um, I want to go back to the frustration um, that I'm aware that people have of a parent who won't go in. So they don't want to get testing. I don't want to know. Um, uh, so I'm asking you now from like a clinical perspective, are there advantages uh, to going in and getting tested? Um, and what a, a loved one might say to somebody to help encourage them to see either a geriatrician or a PCP to get tested? Well, you know, the resistance to going to a clinician about memory loss that's brought up by a family member um, sometimes can be a sign that there is memory loss. You know, sometimes I'll see patients who are concerned themselves that, oh, you know, my memory's not as good. Um, uh, but they don't have other symptoms and they just really have age-related memory changes. I mean, it's a common misconception that everything 
that as you get old you just lose those number of different abilities but you really um, you actually do have certain cognitive strengths strengths that you didn't have when you were younger but yes short-term memory does uh, is more impaired Wait, uh, I need to stop you so some of because <laughs> that was really profound there's a misconception that as you age you're just going to start losing your memory so, so say that one more time because that seems pretty profound because I hear that argument from older people saying, hey, I'm just, old, I'm just getting older. Right. Don't be concerned that right. I, I'm, not, I'm forgetting things because it's just a matter of age. But you're saying so that's you, a dis um, misbelief. Yeah, as, as you age, you're, of course, going to have certain uh, short-term memory uh, loss that we all have. Not to the extent. So a lot of these things are to the extent okay. um, or different, differing in terms of the severity. Um, but you actually do have certain cognitive uh, strengths as you that you continue to develop as you get older. Different connections based on past experiences, for example, you might want to call it wisdom. But you have um, you continue to have or develop certain strengths as you get older, and I think that's a, that is um, as we had mentioned a common misperception. But the memory loss, and to try to answer that the question earlier, the when you have concerns about a loved one with memory loss and and you're you're pretty concerned and they're very reluctant to go so people address that or approach that in different ways i've had people come with and ask to speak to me separately i've had uh, family members ask that i call them at a different time the, their, their loved one call them at a different time or call I've the had, family member i've had times where a family member has asked that i call the family member at a different time, not at the office itself. Okay. Oh, I got it. Okay. Because bringing up the concerns about memory would be upsetting. Right. Do you um, broach the topic to the patient? So if the family I, member I says, I think, I think my husband's having some issues, do you say, hey, I hear you're having some issues? I do, but, do uh, but, but it's, it happens in a few different ways. Um, sometimes the family member will say, please do not mention me at all about oh, this. Mm -hmm. And I don't. You know, okay. so I'll put it, I'll bring it in general terms, like these are just concerns that we oftentimes have. Um, would it be okay if I ask you some other questions or if it's okay if you do this uh, test, uh, you know, in the office? And sometimes I'll have a test for them to do at home too, to look at, um, to look at cognitive impairment, to look at uh, dementia, etc. And um, the patient almost always uh, accept that um, so they'll, they'll do the test and I can't in fact I can't remember a time when a patient refused to talk about it more or refused to do the test in the office mm. so sometimes they're in for a physical their yearly exam and a spouse for example might say I'm concerned you'll bring it up and you found for the most part they're they're open to it so yes. it sounds like you do an intervention of sorts yes and you would encourage people to see a PCP or a geriatrician um, to start those conversations if they're having difficulties. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. I think that you should bring it up. I think it's easy to um, avoid the topic, and it oftentimes is hard to bring the topic up um, because it's upsetting to think about, and it's sometimes there it creates conflict in the family. And there are different ways that you can let the clinician know, mm -hmm. um, but it's really important to let the clinician know. And I think it's also very important if you feel that you continue to have concerns, that you continue to voice those concerns and you ask for more of an evaluation or 
go ahead and ask for a referral um, if you feel it's uh, appropriate to, for example, see a geriatrician. Yeah. Um, going back a little bit, I heard that what you're looking for um, for people who are concerned is changes. So the person usually remembers where they are, then all of a sudden they forget where they're going. Are there other kind of real obvious signs or things that people can look for? Yes, there are. The um, a few things that you that you that we commonly ask is simple calculation. <laughs> you know, so they're able to. To figure out uh, what the uh, tip would be, for example, or making change, um, you ask not not really about memory or remembering people that you know you're not that close with, but are you having difficulty remembering the names of uh, people and family members that are close to you? Um, directions would be another thing that you would ask, uh, not places that you don't go to frequently but uh, places that you go to a lot, a grocery store, a church, what have you. Are you having trouble remembering how to get to those places? Um, and then we would ask the family members similar questions. Because I just read an article, and I, I can't, I apologize to the listener, I don't remember where I read it. It was saying the number one indicator for dementia was spatial orientation. It was, it was saying that in the, in the study, mm -hmm. they found that that was sort of the number one marker uh, for recognizing dimension. Have you heard that? It makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, I would say the what I notice is that it's um, quite often the questions are focused mostly on memory, mm -hmm. but um, executive functioning or figuring out how to do things or do things that you you're no longer able to do simple things that you uh, used to be able to do, whether it's you're using the computer, whether it's you, whatever this person who used to be like in our in our family, who managed the finances for years, you know, why would a spouse um, take that over? Is there a reason for that? Um, and that would be things to keep to uh, to look out for as well, um, or just technology, simple technology. Is is it is someone um, were they using the computer and no longer using it? Um, do they have a smartphone? They're no longer using their smartphone. You know why? Why is that? Um, or maybe they're starting to, if the symptoms are have progressed to the extent, are they stopping to do things socially that they were doing before? Um, do they now no longer want to uh, call people or speak to people? Do they no longer want to do different activities that they used to enjoy doing? Um, are they not reading as much? These are all things to, to look out for that may indicate a problem with, uh, with memory or other cognitive impairment. So I have to add the two-part hard question. That is, what do we do with parents who live far away? Because your parent, your mom ended up moving closer to you, and it sounds like that might have been a turning point for you to start seeing these things. Yes. But how, how do individuals with loved ones far away do this work? And the second part of it is, do you think that you would have figured out or found out that this was happening if she continued to live three and a half hours away? So it would be harder, harder to, to see. So seeing my mother more, more, my mother more frequently um, and seeing her in day-to-day -day activities was helpful for that. And so it would be more of a challenge. And so that's, um, that's tough um, to approach, but um, strategies that you could take would be uh, first of all, who who is her her uh, de facto family there? Mm 
uh, or who, who would be a, a family member's you know, support system there, a good friend or an, uh, a neighbor that you could speak to about your concerns. Um, I would definitely speak to their, um, their physicians or their clinician, you know, let them know what your um, concerns are. See, we have the, the real benefit in our office, in my family practice office, of having other professionals that sort of extend the reach of what we do. And so community health workers or um, a specific program where there's a geriatric care nurse mm -hmm. who can go out to visit the families as well and get the get people in touch with different community resources. Mm -hmm. um, if that's available, that's wonderful. Um, I think even if you live far away, it would be useful to, um, if you can, if it's possible, to um, to visit your 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 mother or father or loved one for a, t a little bit more of an extended period of time, a week, for, for example, mm -hmm. and uh, um, go with them to a doctor's office and, and raise those concerns there. Oh, okay. Very unconventional, but I have heard how people will touch base with those who they see on a, on a regular basis. So, for example, um, a Meals on Wheels person, like who stops by, mm -hmm. or a cleaning individuals cleaning service they'll sort of check in like have you noticed anything have you seen i'm not traditional yeah. but you know anybody who has sort of regular contact with them to sort of check in and say have you seen anything noticed do you feel comfortable talking about it kind of a thing i think it's a great idea yeah so that might be another option too um what about the very very reluctant parents who refuse to go to the doctor and they don't have any other conditions comorbidities um any suggestions on how they can have that conversation with their loved one? So I think that um, you you need to have that conversation with uh, um, and to let them know what what your concerns are specifically and why. Um, and I think again I'll kind of go back to what I what I said before. I think that it would be unusual. It happens, but it would be unusual that that. Um, uh, once you lay out specifically what your concerns are and why, and just really ask that, even if it's for your benefit, that your parents, that you can go with your parents um, to the doctor's visit or to the clinician's visit, then uh, then I think most people would agree to that. It may take a lot of discussions, um, and there may be hurt feelings, but I think that's the best option. Yeah, are there benefits? Because um, we know Alzheimer's is something that there's no cure. There are medications you can give to slow down the progression. Right. Is that something worth mentioning to a loved one to say, I'm, I'm aware that there are ways to slow it down. I want to go back to the alternative therapies that you had mentioned. So are there other options beyond taking medication? Are there benefits to knowing that you might have early stages of Alzheimer's or dementia? So I think the benefits would be to see if there it would be mostly for those alternative, not even treatments, but just sort of um, ways that you can live your life as independently to maintain your autonomy with actually more support. So that's another, I think, helpful way to look at it. So are there things that you can employ for, for, um, for a person to live, just continue to live in the place that they want to live in? Um, so going back to my own personal experience, rather than assisted living, um, having someone come to the house um, to assist 
maybe with medications, maybe with preparing meals. Um, I think that would be helpful. Depending, it's, there's going to be a bit a different, people will need different things at different times. So if there are real mild issues, then it could really be just be a neighbor checking in on them, you know. Mm -hmm. um, if the symptoms or as symptoms progress, then I think that you need more more um, support than that. Um, so you had mentioned Meals on Wheels. We had mentioned before a community health worker um, coming to the, the, maybe you have some through a church, you could have um, people who volunteer to spend some time with patients who are, with elderly patients who are living alone. Mm -hmm. Even just that companionship is so important. Um, if the condition progresses to the point where uh, it would be best for them to not be alone during the day, then you could even have adult daycare, for example. So there's a lot of different options and a, little, a lot of different, uh, uh, I think, answers to that question, depending on the person, the severity of the problems that they're faced with, the support system in the area that they live in. So we're, we're coming to the end. Um, the other thing that comes up is finances. So we're talking about all of these different options of having people come in and at getting extra care and keeping them in the home. And this is another thing I hear come up a lot from people saying, I would love for my parent to have the care that they need, but I can't afford it. Mm -hmm. I would like to keep working and have someone come during the day, but I can't afford that. Um, I'm sure that you get this as a physician. So what resources do you suggest in places where people can go to get their parents some help, um, recognizing that there are financial limitations that people face? So that is a difficult question, no doubt about it. Um, and I think it would be uh, helpful to get the input um, if you have to be, if you, if wherever it is that uh, your parents get their care, if there's a social worker available to see what different options that they have. Um, you may also have an elder, elder lawyer um, who has information for them on how they can uh, best plan for uh, as they age. Um, if you're, if you do have, if your parents do have um, a financial advisor, um, then you can ask them as well. It's, I know something that uh, that uh, that I've done with my parents' financial advisor. We've had a relationship for for several years um, to help sort of figure out those those issues. Is it worth it to have long-term care insurance? I don't know the answer to that, um, but but some people feel that it is worth it. Um, and then there's uh, there are different options. It, it uh, varies from state to state, so I think it would be worth it to know. Um, to connect with someone who would know the laws in, in the state. That might, again, be a, a social worker. But what happens as your finances are exhausted? Uh, at what point does uh, Medicaid come in, for example, if there's uh, long-term care or nursing home care that's the best option or um, available? At what point does that kick in? Um, so those would be, uh, I think, questions to again, to ask maybe a social worker, elder lawyer, et cetera. Okay, because so I've heard people say, well, that's not covered. And I'll say, well, just check, look into that. You, you might, it might actually be covered in your insurance. That, that procedure, that um, uh, aid that your parent needs, you know, mm -hmm. that whatever, you know, ask some questions. So you're saying a lawyer might know, that the, an accountant might know, look into the laws for that state, Medicare, Medicaid, um, there might be some coverage they're not aware of. Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, 
We actually spent most of the time talking about advice for loved ones um, who are caring for and concerned about a parent or, or someone else um, that may be having some cognitive um, uh, issues. Um, any advice that you would offer for a clinician who is working with and treating a patient who seems to have signs of dementia or with families? Some things that you might be saying to the family members, some things that you might be offering to help them through this whole process. I think the first thing you do is, is um, if this is part of what you do in your practice, then you have to give it the time that it needs and deserves. And that can be a challenge. Um, but structure your visits so that you have the time that you can ask those questions um, or give those cognitive tests. So be familiar with the different cognitive tests that are available um, and the pros and cons of each. Decide how much you want to, if we're talking about a primary care clinician or physician, how much you feel comfortable and want to do with your, with, um, on your own. You certainly can um, uh, really do it all. Um, or um, do you feel more comfortable with making sure the screening process is in place and then knowing what the resources are in your area and what the other uh, specialty positions that you can refer to. Um, and you could, it, it varies from area to area. So you might have a, a geriatrician who works really as a primary care clinician who sort of takes over the care of that patient. Um, or it may be more of a consultant basis. So mm -hmm. you'll have the patient see uh, the geriatrician maybe every six months and communicate with you and give different suggestions and together adjust the medications and together see how you can connect that person and their family to the resources that will be helpful to them. But the, the, I think the main point is to decide how much you want to handle in your office. Um, just make sure that you have the time that you need uh, to do the the screening and the treatment, the screening, the treatment that your patients need. Yeah, excellent. And I loved how you talked about the connection because I think of, um, had this image of you in a good way that the spider connecting, you know, you're, you're webbing mm -hmm. all of this because the more complex patient, they need more of a connection with their family, with other specialists. And so as a family medicine physician, you're really um, that main person who is able to connect all the pieces and be there. Um, and it sounds like you're a real valuable resource for the loved one who's concerned about this. So having that trust and, and opening up to you can really be the turning point for many people. Yeah, ask the questions and definitely be aware of what, what resources you have and not just medical resources, but community resources as well to really extend because there's a lot of resources out there. For example, we didn't even talk about the Alzheimer's Association, but mm -hmm. they have wonderful resources as well and, and a lot of other resources that you can tap in depending on where you, where you are and, and what's available. So what do you do when you have um, a very reluctant person, because you had said, you know, bring them to the, the doctor's office or whatever, but you have somebody who I don't want to address it because Alzheimer's is, is sort of a death sentence if you think about it, right? You're never going to come back. There's no cure. Dementia, same thing. I, I hear, why would I want that diagnosis if knowing is just going to make it more difficult for me? I think it's helpful to look at it um, maybe a different way. Uh, looking at it and knowing as much as you can about a condition, any condition, um, whether it's memory loss or other conditions, um, so that you can address it in such a way that we don't necessarily, uh, we aren't necessarily, or we're frequently not talking about cure, we're talking about 
um, making sure that a person lives in the way they want to live and they maintain their independence uh, and autonomy uh, to the best of their ability. So how can we support a person? Um, how can we help them to do that? Whether it's memory issues or other issues. So there are real advantages to actually having a diagnosis and knowing. Yeah, it's, you really want to know what's going on. And if you have a, a real full understanding of what's going on, then you can know what to do about it. That doesn't mean necessarily a medication, or it just doesn't, doesn't mean a medication by itself. Usually it means a lot, a lot of other things. In this case, it might mean other types of support. Again, that allows a person to live the kind of life they want to live. Excellent. So thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really, really insightful. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Uh, so if you want more information, there is now a Facebook page, Health Stories. Uh, you can find that information also on healthstories.castos.com. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we hope that you learned some more information. And if you have questions, comments, suggestions, or you'd like to be interviewed, please let me know on our Facebook page. This is Health Stories.